Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the Nolcast. Have a uh, exciting little revisit of a baseball series that uh, we were eager to be able to hopefully talk about at length, uh, as it would mean that it was probably a successful trip to Baton Rouge, and boy, was it ever. Two games, two wins, and uh, just shaping up for little bit of a, a fairy tale into a an illustrious cl- career so now that we've gotten our uh, cliches in we'll go ahead and thank our friends at louisiana hot sauce three simple ingredients one fantastic product and uh, as always we want to thank the fine folks in new iberia louisiana for the leadership that they provide the null cast but bud 40 seasons 40 wins win in a super regional uh that i don't think many people thought the baseball team had too much of a chance, so there'll certainly be some football and football recruiting uh, within this Nolcast, but we will start this with the rare baseball kickoff when it comes to the subject matter. Indeed, man. That is the heart of the matter tonight, to uh, borrow a, a line from that song from the Counting Crows. So how cool was that? I mean, just they go in to Alex Box Stadium and beat a program that has six national titles in their own backyard and to do it in comeback fashion with the long ball, with with resilient pitching, just that was so cool. I, I was I was that was so awesome to see. I, I was watching it and just rooting for him. And, and when Mendoza gets that hit, that that's awesome, man. I I, I don't I don't know. Like, like that has to be one of the more enjoyable Florida State sports moments you've ever had, right? Just the it's like wow. The Georgia series was cool, and it was like man. Because it was all house money at that point. You had a not very good season. And then you're like, okay, well, you know, hey, we'll go go to LSU, see what happens. But, like, you'd already you'd already overachieved in the playoffs relative to what your expectations were. And then you're kind of pinching yourself, like, is this happening? Like, they, you know, they, they and, and the way the way game one started, right? You're like, okay, well, there's a little com- coming back down to earth. I think that's what made it special. You kind of you almost started to write the uh... – uh, write the obit in your head after about the fourth or fifth inning. You're like, well, here it is. Okay, well, you know, four nothing. Can't can't put bat to ball, and uh, and you kind of had a feeling that if if you were going to win the series, and certainly Jeff Cameron talked about this. I don't want to try to rip his uh, his opinions and state them as my own, but I think I think you did have the feeling that you needed to win the first game. Really needed to win um, the first two and and kind of get out of dodge, but. Certainly had a feeling that this this team was not going to lose the first one, then come back and win the series. Well, I think that was, that was the right call because of of the depth, right? That that LSU seemed to have. You, you needed to that you were not going to win a war of attrition with LSU, most likely, and yet in game number two, you somewhat did with with, with, with that thing going to extra innings and and having to dip into dip into the pen and, and dip into the bench a little bit. That that was pretty awesome. It, this team is is showing that it it's always had talent, right? And we we said, look, they've got talent. They just they've not really played to their talent level for much of the year, uh, but they are showing big time glimpses of of what they can do when they do play to their talent level. That they now they hit the long ball all year, but the defense in both the first two series was I, I think better than we saw in the regular season, or at least that at least the, the the critical errors did not end up killing them uh, as regularly as it seemed to. In, in in the regular season, um, and the pitching, I, they're they're pitching pretty well. Uh, and when you hit the ball like like Florida State's hitting the ball, you know it, it almost seemed like when they scored five or six runs, like that wasn't that wasn't that high of a total. But uh, in, in comparison to the Georgia series, it was not. But they're they're still putting runs up on the board 
playing pretty good baseball. And you look at it, there's not necessarily a team this year out in Omaha where it's like, okay, that team right there is going to go down as as like an all-time, you know, a, a amazing college baseball team, right? Like like with with 20 future pros and, and everything else on it. Or not 20, obviously, but it, like like – who do you really think is is like the favorite favorite out there? Um, if you, if you told me I had to put fifty dollars down, I would put it on Vanderbilt. I I think that's fair because of their their next level pitching, but like I don't know that they're they're not odds on compared to the rest of the field. You know, like I if you said Vanderbilt or the field, I'm taking the field for sure. Okay, so Vanderbilt uh, is plus two eighty, or Arkansas is plus two ninety, Mississippi State is plus three seventy five. So interestingly here. Uh, Vegas actually has uh, Arkansas and Vandy uh, with with roughly the same odds uh, to win it. Florida State, if you want them, you can get them at plus twelve hundred, almost fifteen to one there on the Seminoles. Michigan, of course, being the uh, the, the worst odds. Man, I, I don't know that Auburn or Texas Tech should be that much better rated than Florida State is. I, I think there's definitely kind of a drop off between those first three SEC teams and the rest of the field. Right, and Florida State is an underdog in this first game. I mean, a, a pretty sizable one. They're they're given a uh, they're given about a thirty five percent chance to win, but still, like that's not that crazy. I mean, that, that's that's like being a touchdown underdog in football. You, you, it's not, it's not, it's not like like a death sentence here from the odds makers or anything. If they beat Arkansas, it will not be that big of an upset. But I guess we should probably talk about the draw a little bit and and maybe some strategy. It's pretty friendly, pretty friendly draw. I think I don't, I don't. You know, obviously, you just mentioned you you start off with one of the <clears throat> the best teams left in college baseball. That's kind of what happens uh, when you go to the College World Series. But as far as the side of the bracket you landed on, not being uh, not being paired with Vanderbilt, not being paired with uh, with Louisville, I, I think it's a pretty friendly as to how you learn, or excuse me, as to how you land. And if you do manage to beat Arkansas in Game One, then yeah, we can we can really kind of start to dream because uh, game number two is, by all counts, not uh, probably one of the more favorable draws that you could hope for. Yeah, if Florida State was to be an underdog in game two, which I can almost guarantee you they will not be, uh, it would not be a substantial underdog, right? They're probably going to be coin flip to, to slight favorite in game number two, especially if, if they were to draw Michigan. Yeah, to clarify, game number two is the winner or loser, uh, depending on how you come out of the first game. But it's the, uh, what is it, Texas Tech-Michigan matchup? Yes, yep. So the other reason why I'm so confident in Florida State being a favorite in game number two and why they're, why game number one is so important, you have to be able to pull that upset if you want to make this run, I, I think, is because Florida State is going to throw Van Eck in game number two. Now, <sighs> Van Eck is going to be a probably a pretty damn good major league pitcher at some point. With, with the velocity he has, I mean, the, the TV had, had him gunning like ninety five. So, and that, I don't think that TV gun was all that was all that friendly to pitchers. I know people in the stadium were saying it was showing ninety eight, which I don't really believe. But if you just you know use kind of relative velocity, looking at what what Van Eck was throwing and what everybody else was throwing. He was probably the hard thrower, the second hardest thrower uh, of the weekend, and that includes all the guys who are relievers and, and they're max effort pitchers over a very short period of time. Um, unless you're an LSU reliever and you end up throwing 80-something pitches. But 
I guess that's a different story for a different day. I, I don't know, man. Would you throw Would you throw Van Eck in game two? Because I, I would want him to go immediately so I, so I can maybe get, you know, I, I want to get the maximum number of starts I can get out of him. Yeah, I think that's why. I think I think if you really want to dream the dream here, you've you've got to try to throw that kid as as much as possible. And uh, uh, you nailed it on the head there with the the ramifications as to when's the next time you'll be able to to go to him. And uh, look, uh, you were talking about a guy who's won forty games, forty years. I'm not suggesting that I have a superior knowledge, but uh, when it comes to decision making surrounding college baseball, but Van Eck, uh, your number two is your ace, and at, at this time of year. Uh, you gotta you gotta get your ace on the mound as frequently as possible. Absolutely, I mean, I, I think that's that's the key. And and at this point, I do think you have a big enough sample set to say that he is a better pitcher than Parrish. And that's not a knock on Parrish. Van Eck's just more talented at this point. You know, they, they, they've they've swept uh, two national seeds in back back weekends now. So it's not like you're doing something wrong. I guess the question is, is their their plan optimal? And we don't know uh, if. If there are some sort of uh, mental factors here, uh, or you know, sort of like non-quantifiables, in that maybe maybe uh, Vanek likes going number two, and if you put him at number one, he wouldn't like it. I kind of doubt that, to be honest. But benefit benefit of the doubt, benefit of the doubt, the guy in Mike Martin who has won you know so many games and like you said, forty years, forty wins. That's uh, by the way. Speaking of Martin, uh, Martin Jr. Does this run increase the chance that he gets hired? I am of the opinion that this was going to be his job as was. So uh, I don't know that this has a, a massive ramification on that, but I, I certainly won't be. Uh, it's it's not a negative when you when you put it up on the on the chalkboard as far as the pluses and minuses. Uh, I think that uh, the old meat was uh, was going to be your next head coach when it comes to baseball, regardless. But uh, continuity can. Can only be seen as a as a positive after the past couple of weeks they've had. I will say I'm very against using postseason to decide whether to uh, hire a coach, and especially if it's an interim type coach or, or a promotion from within. Uh, the best example of this that I can think of is one Bill Stewart, who after uh, Rich Rodriguez left left uh, West Virginia for Michigan, uh, Bill Stewart came and took West Virginia to the Fiesta Bowl, I think it was against uh, Oklahoma. And totally destroyed them. And, uh, well, excuse me. Yeah, they they, they, they ran all over them. I, I, I'm trying to remember what the final score was. But anyway, um, so West, West Virginia hires Bill Stewart. Ends up, uh, there was a reason Bill Stewart had not been hired as a head coach, like in his 40 or 50 year career. He was pretty terrible. Uh, and, and they had a, a pretty quick, uh, quick downturn there. Don't do that. However, like you said, yeah, I, I think I think it was going to be junior anyway. I do think this run helps. It uh, it increases the difficulty of picking somebody other than junior, right? Can you imagine saying, "Hey, awesome, thanks, good job showing improvement, uh, and, and and getting this team to where they needed to be," but we're going to go in a different direction? I, I have a hard time seeing that. Also, I don't think junior would cost as much as some of the other. Uh, big-time candidates, perhaps, and knowing that Coburn is very much a budget guy, not that that's his only skill, but he is budget-conscious, I, I think that's that's what who it will be. And, and I, I guess to answer my own question, I, I do think it increases the chance that he's the higher uh, somewhat. 
it's just been a it's been a fantastic couple of weeks, and it's been a great uh, you know great story that certainly was wildly unexpected, and uh, been a great uh, great into a baseball season that certainly didn't look like it was going to have a good end to it. And a nice little video put out by a bunch of former players uh, wishing Martin and the baseball pro- program the best. Uh, it's about eleven minutes long, but it's just great to see the amount of people that have played for him and the time and just the amount of uh, of individuals who have what appears to be a very authentic uh, love for him and the program and uh, certainly a lot of people hoping that uh, that there's a, a story that's you know yet to be written surrounding this baseball team and the coach uh, but regardless it's been a, a wonderful little bout of success and another uh you know, another nice moment for uh, an Olympic sport, if you want to label baseball that as such, uh, for the athletic program. So, uh, nice couple of weeks here, and um, as you mentioned, I, I think this only only bodes positive for the chance that Mike Martin Jr. ultimately uh, steps into the office that his dad will ultimately vacate. No doubt. All right, so uh, the AD consolidation. Um, you want to talk about that real quick? Sure. Yeah, we just talked about Coburn and his uh, budgetary skills, and there's been uh, something that, that we've mentioned a couple times on the podcast. And I know other people have mentioned this as well. I'm not saying necessarily it was exclusive, but uh, that the idea that the athletic department uh, was going to kind of merge itself with the booster unit and have more of a kind of bring everybody under the same uh, umbrella and have a little bit more of a a traditional setup, at least traditional setup, when you look around the way that the the vast majority of the athletic departments are uh, situated and and built, and um, the way that they operate around the country. I, I agree with that. I, look, this is potentially a big deal. Uh, it is not like Deadspin claimed it was uh, motivated by the, the want to privatize the athletic department and hide behind uh, sunshine laws. Is that a potential side effect? Yes, they, they didn't get that wrong. Uh, that is true. Florida State could be uh, less um, compliant with sunshine laws than they already uh, are because they could hide behind some of that stuff. They could take a long time to uh, to delay some contracts and whatnot. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's potentially uh, a side effect or potentially a benefit depending on like if you work for the school, it might make your job a little bit easier, although it's, you know, state government, so it should be open according to, you know, state law. Uh, but look, the main thing I, I think that this accomplishes is communication within uh, and, and between the parties who need to communicate well. So that would be the boosters, the athletic department, the president, the AD, the fundraising arm, the decision-making arm, the planning arm, the, the, the sports arm. Th- those all need to be together, right, to where you don't have – sort of everybody doing their own thing and then um, projects take a little bit longer than they should or maybe you have differing visions and uh, differing visions are fine, but ultimately one direction needs to be decided upon. And that decision, I think with this move, can be decided upon a little bit earlier. If you want to hear more about this, we did talk about the likelihood this was going to happen in an episode and probably some of the ramifications of it. In our booster talk episode, which was what about a month, maybe six weeks ago now, I, I think. So, I just think it surprised us that it happened this quickly. I, I, I did not know that it was going to go down, you know, in in the first week in June. Yeah, certainly heard it was in the works, and might have heard a, a word or two that they were further along with it. Uh, but 
still surprising that they were able to uh, consolidate as, as quickly as they were. And, um, you know, not to not to plug ourselves, but the Sports Illustrated article of 10 days two weeks ago or so that we were fortunate enough to be mentioned in uh, talked about the need for Florida State to do this to attract as, as good of an athletic director as possible. And I certainly don't need to stand up for uh, Andy uh, Andy Staples by any means. But, I mean, I, I had it from – from a member of the uh, the booster board that they wanted to do this to make themselves as attractive a position as possible uh, to the the next AD that they hire. So I think they realized that they had some uh, you know some some things that could be potential roadblocks when it comes to attracting uh, a world class athletic director and somebody that should look. This is an athletic department for all its woes and at times. Uh, you know, we may complain about certain things, but when you look at what this athletic department does overall, it's one of the best athletic departments in all the collegiate sports. And Florida State needs to be in a place where they can hire one of the best athletic directors in uh, all of collegiate sports. And I'm not sure they would have been able to do that under the uh, under the previous structure. Well, uh, I had a lot of people telling me Andy Staples was full of it. Yeah, well, that, he, uh, he was he, not full of it by any I mean, at all. So here's the thing. Number one, there... There's a couple of reporters out there who you know talk to a lot of important people in college sports, right? Andy's one of them. Feldman's one of them. Dan Wetzel, I, I would say, is one of them. There's a couple other guys I know who legitimately have the the ear of multiple ads, and these are the dudes who go to like the NFF dinner, which is which is held in New York National Football Foundation, uh, and and a couple of these other dinners and get-togethers during Heisman Week, right? They they go up there. None of these reporters really care about the Heisman ceremony at all. The reason you go is because you get because basically all the important people in college athletics are there, uh, the conference commissioners and a lot of important ads and whatnot up in New York that week discussing things and going over potential plans and and, and talking shop. I know Andy goes to that, right? I know Andy knows a lot of ads. So when Andy says, "Look, there are a lot of ads." who don't want to take that Florida State job simply because of how the thing is structured. Now, the retort from fans was sometimes, well, hey, show me a project that, that, that you know wouldn't get done or couldn't get done or in, anything that this actually caused a problem for. And they have a valid point in that the, the, it was not totally dysfunctional, right? It was just not optimal. And there is a difference. And so I think this is a better design ultimately for Florida State, uh, Andy is right that there were definitely ADs who, who didn't want to take the job. We have said this, that Coburn is – he's not an interim anymore, but in my mind, he's sort of like an extended interim. He, he's – It's a bit of a caretaker. Uh, yeah. He's operating with like a finite date, right? Like, and, and that finite date is not is it's not yet determined, but uh, the, the goal is to make sure that this, this transition goes smoothly and that the budget is in a good place to make this job attractive – for an AD that you hope you could keep for like five to ten years. Well said. Something we'll uh, we'll certainly have a have a lot of talk about uh, once that process starts to play itself out, uh, whenever that may be. But we'll circle to uh, to football a little bit. Talk a little recruiting here. Uh, Florida State's June camps not exactly been uh, you know stockpiled with major talent, and that's kind of by. Kind of by design, I think, uh, and, and you're certainly the resident expert on this, but if I'm not mistaken, they may be following a little bit of a similar pattern that they did last year where they really are attempting to cluster as much talent uh, as possible, maybe within one or two dates, 
and uh, and try to maximize the number of elite prospects that they have on campus at the same time and uh, really really kind of try to condense their efforts into uh, one or two hot spots and, and try to make the most out of those windows of opportunity. Look, we had this on the exact same conversation last year, like you said. It, it, they did not – get much talent up to there or June camp from what I understand. Obviously I'm on paternity leave, so I, I did not go, uh, but talk to people who did go. Um, look, I don't think they expected to get a whole lot of talent up for their June camp. They are absolutely focusing on getting their top targets to come to their Saturday night live uh, July event. And that's what they did last year. Last year, I think we basically said verbatim, Hey, uh, they are getting all these yeses from kids to go to their elite camp. If those kids do show up, it's going to be a rousing success. It was. They did a great job last year for their summer camps in total. Uh, at this time last year, I said, you know, if it doesn't work out, then it will be a disaster of a summer camp season. Uh, look, Willie and his staff have done this before. This is not an area where I really doubt them, especially not after seeing them successfully pull this off last year. We already know that some elite kids are talking about coming to the uh, to the event in July, the, the Friday Night Lights. Or, or what do they call it? Friday Night Lights? Saturday Night Lights? Whatever it was. Um, they did a good job promoting it last year with the kids. It's it's an area they actually did good on so, or did well on social media, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but look, if if they were to miss this year, then I think the same conversation applies because they did not get a whole lot of, of good talent to work with their coaches during during you know the, the sort of individual coaching sessions that are potentially available at the June camps. Uh, but I, I would say my like worryometer is not real high on this simply because I've seen them do this previous stops and I've seen them do this literally last year in Tallahassee. But in the back of your mind, it's always like if, if they don't get the kids in for the, for this live event, then, then you got a little problem. Maybe a little problem, not a major one, but uh, three different offensive line prospects at Florida State with uh, kind of various levels of uh, of interest and involvement with committed elsewhere over the course of the last ten days or so. Uh, maybe maybe Jalen Rivers, the kid out of uh, Orange Park, Florida, is the one that's the most troubling of the three, at least in my opinion, if nothing else, because of the position he plays. But uh, why don't we just real briefly talk about Rivers Johnson and the. Uh, the Mincy kid that committed to Florida over the past week. Yeah, so uh, I I think Mincy's a tackle, and, and I agree with you. I think Rivers is probably a tackle. Um, you know, Rivers going to Miami is not not what you want to see there. If you're a Florida State fan, Florida State, again, uh, failing to land top-notch tackles. Uh, now, look, I understand that they want to get a lot of athleticism at the tackle position, and that, that's, that's fair. That's their prerogative. Uh, but it's not like they backed off Rivers hard or like that. They, they definitely wanted to get him. Um, and, and he had a good connection with Miami and, and ends up committing to Miami. That's a good job by Miami staff. And, and look, so far, Florida State under Willie Taggart is failing to land good offensive tackle prospects. End of sentence. Gerald Mency is a kid I do like. He is a little bit heavy. However, he is a year younger, not a year younger, but he's about, what, 10 months, nine months younger than grade level, I believe. I do take that into account when I scout kids because if I saw him as a junior instead of a senior, I would say, oh, wow, he's, he has a lot of time to reshape his body and, and continue to mature and and be, become better as a player physically as well as mentally. Uh, well, so Florida gets him. It would not shock me if uh, if, if his recruitment bounces around a little bit. Mency is a kid who has liked a number of schools early on, and so that's uh, it's something to watch. I, I don't know if that's the most solid of all commitments. Uh, Tate Johnson, who committed to Auburn, 
a Georgia kid. He's a guard or a center. I actually like him a lot. He's lost a ton of bad weight over the last uh, year or so and had a good connection with Auburn and, and clearly a better connection with Auburn than he did Florida State. But look, Tate Johnson is, is a guard, right? I, I don't think Florida State's done a bad job recruiting the guard position over the last couple of years. Uh, but they have clearly failed at offensive tackle. They did not make their offensive tackle position much better with this last recruiting class. Um, and they have instant playing time for, for an elite prospect to come in and, and, and take right now, right? Like a lot of these guys on this roster just can't play at Florida State. They're just not. You could develop the heck out of them for the next couple of years. Some of these dudes just won't be able to do it talent-wise, missed time, development-wise, et cetera. So they do have to do, to do a good job of getting offensive tackles in here or they're going to have to get a new head coach in here at some point. I mean, period. Like if Willie doesn't get some quality offensive tackles into the program, he will not be here that long. That is, it, We talked about this a little bit in the last show. If he fails, that will probably be, be the number one reason why to have a position that is really far below replacement level and not having adequately addressed it. In, you know, for instance, last year with the JUCO thing, we said they need to sign two JUCOs and get a transfer or two transfers and a JUCO or three transfers or three JUCOs, whatever. But you need to get three college-ready bodies in the program. You, you, you sign two. It looks like Jay Williams so far really can't play, uh, not like eligibility-wise, but ability-wise and, and where he is as a player. Uh, and we'll see what Ryan Roberts can do from Northern Illinois. So you know, not great news this week for offensive line recruiting. I wouldn't say that the sky is falling. Uh, there are still a number of top targets that they're in it for. Richie Leonard, uh, Thomas Schrader. Got a couple other guys that I know they like and, and, and they're they're talking up. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, it's not a mystery, though, that they absolutely do have to, to land some offensive tackles, right? Like they they can't miss on that again. If not, I mean, it's just going to it's going to set the rebuild project back again another year. Appreciate you bringing us up to speed when it comes to offensive line recruiting. Don't want to spend too much time on this, uh, but hey, look, it is uh, the second week in June. There's not a ton of uh, college football content out there, but if you are a Florida State fan and have been on social media over the past week or so, uh, other than having a great time following the baseball team, you've probably noticed uh, – a little bit of a, a player back and forth or a spat, a little bit of drama. And look, this happens with every program. Uh, it's certainly not unique to Florida State, but uh, never, a, never a great look to have some, some public, uh, you know, some public disharmony, uh, regardless of, you know, how uh, recent these guys have played or uh, when they played or any other kind of uh, descriptors as to when they were when they were Knowles. Okay, so. That, I don't care about this at all. Like, I really I, – I have a little bit of, like, trouble just mounting a, something to say here. But, like you said, it does happen at seemingly every, every program. It happened with all three of Florida State's most recent head coaches at some point or another. Uh, it happens when the team is losing, typically, right? All these guys last year, with the exception of one, at least as far as I, what I, what I can figure – were saying incredibly nice things about uh, Coach Taggart and the staff. They had a great turnout at the uh, spring game last year, and uh, everybody was super hyped for uh, for what was going on. Uh, you, had, you had guys who were saying great things and how they were working with good technique and blah, 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 including some of the same guys who were later ripping the program in uh, just, I mean, just like 10 months later. Now, I did like that Antonio Cromartie basically said that uh, he should be defensive coordinator <laughs> uh, because he – 
he would never let these guys get beat, basically, and that the current defense coordinator doesn't even know how to teach his own defense. Uh, and then basically the beef was like that, that the coaching staff did not want these guys around, allegedly. And that was brought on basically by Levante Taylor tweeting something that he probably shouldn't have tweeted, to be honest, about how like guys talk a big game and they don't come around to help and blah, blah, blah. Look, this is all born out of losing, okay? Like people don't say this kind of stuff when the team is winning, uh, when, when you're losing. Guys who played in the NFL and think they know everything about football because they played in the NFL want to talk a lot. Uh, some of these dudes who are on, on Twitter talking actually didn't even have a decent college career. Some of it because they were hurt, but much, much less play uh, in actual pro games. I think this is much to do about nothing. I, Taylor probably should not have tweeted what, what he tweeted. It's not surprising to me that, that they would not want to invite uh, Antonio Cromartie in, right? Uh, after saying that, like, the defensive coordinator has no idea what he's doing. You know, that's probably not the guy you invite in to help out. I don't know, man. I I, I think this is kind of much to do about nothing, but it is uh, – it's the offseason. And then Dion uh, was like, hey, like, let's keep this stuff in-house and everybody's welcome to come and, blah, 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 and like, let's all help out. Go Knowles. Willie does seem to have Dion pretty pretty firmly in his corner, and Dion is the most famous FSU football player by – probably by a lot, Right. Just because, just cause the, like the level of fame, so he's kind of the, the the trump card, if you will, on Twitter. All right, bud. Uh, before we transition to our listener questions here, I want to draw everybody's attention, uh, as we have the past couple of podcasts, to the Madison Social tailgate that uh, they're throwing through the Boise State game, August thirty first. Uh, exact time will depend on when uh, kickoff is formally announced and scheduled. Uh, but do want to uh, bring your attention to the. 27,000 square feet of air-conditioned space that they have secured that will undoubtedly be filled with food, booze, and all kinds of other activities. Want to draw people's attention to uh, FSU Jack's Tailgate.com, where they can get their tickets uh, via Eventbrite. Uh, One ticket is for $20. It's uh, entrance with uh, two drinks. Again, that's $20. Tailgate entrance, two drinks, and a plate of food is $25. Uh, as we mentioned, we'll have a little bit of a live podcast going on uh, at some point in time throughout this. And uh, look, it's been fantastic for us to be able to meet and interact with as many as you as we have been able to. And only hope that you'll uh, plan to uh, join us in Jacksonville. Uh, anytime you look at what uh, a late August in Jacksonville means, uh, 27,000 square feet of air-conditioned space, sounds uh, all the more appealing. And uh, hope to be able to interact with as many of you as possible. And uh, if you have any questions about the event, just head us up and we'll do our best to provide you with uh, the best information possible. 92 and rainy. 92 and rainy is what, is what the Almanac says for that day in August. Now look, I can deal with 92. I can deal with rainy. But 92 and rainy? If I'm taking a family up there, hell, if, if, if I'm leaving the kids at home and I'm, I'm just taking my wife, or if you're just taking your husband, ladies, man, you don't want to you don't want to be out in the heat with the rain and that steam coming up off the ground. Like for the game, we'll deal with it. For the tailgate experience, no. Be nice indoors. It's Florida, Jacksonville, in the crazy heat. Be indoors. Twenty seven thousand square feet. That's where that's where you need to be. No other tailgate has that like we have it with ours, going to be an awesome experience. And and all you really got to do is just think back think back one year. Remember what the weather was like when the Hokies rolled into town, when, when FSU played Virginia Tech? 
that's it right there. Secure your indoor spot. Reasonable prices, great, great time. Lots of room for activities too. All right, also want to tell you about Resolution Home Loans. Resolution Home Loans, when you call 844-FSU-LOAN or visit fsuhomeloans.com, you'll be hooked up with Shannon Young. Shannon Young is the best guy in the business to deal with. I should know. He did my mortgage for our, for our new place and uh, very, very happy that we did. Shannon will walk you through the process. Resolution has very competitive rates. Rates have dropped recently, so you may, you may want to get on this. I, I, I was telling my wife the other day, God, gosh, what if we had waited a little bit, but Still very, uh, very happy that we locked this locked this new place in. Happy with it. And uh, Ingram, I think we just sent out number 21 and 22 uh, as far as T-shirts. Going to a happy new Resolution Home Loan users who have uh, have closed their loan through Resolution Home Loan, uh, who are also listeners of the Nolcast. If you get a loan through Resolution, I will send you a T-shirt. And we're going to throw in a Louisiana hot sauce koozie because I have a ton of them in my office right now and I'm trying to kind of slowly get rid of these things but yeah you, you'll, you'll get a uh, you'll get an old cast t-shirt as well as a great customer service experience at a competitive rate 844 fsu loan or fsu hey guys looking at this here we we, we just passed 3,000 total reviews on itunes and we are we're darn close to passing 3,000 five-star reviews on itunes here's the most recent one listener since 2014 Quote, this is by far the best sports podcast I've found, and I've been a loyal listener for five years. So it was past time I wrote a review. The hosts are knowledgeable, informative, and obviously well-connected with the athletic department. I've learned a lot about football in general and FSU specifically by listening, and I don't believe I've missed a single episode since 2014. Congrats on the new baby, bud. Awesome. I love that. We know this guy actually listens, which is very cool. Next one here uh, from uh, CCalB007. Uh, to be honest, I know very little about football, and I was never an FSU fan until I started working on a PhD here at Florida State. Congratulations. Uh, Nolcast gives me all the info, info I want to know so that I can keep up with the team. So whether you're a diehard or casual fan out there, give us those five-star reviews if you feel the show's been good, and let your friends know as well. We always like uh, uh, we always like the extra exposure. And if you want, grab your husband or your wife or your, your kid's iPhone and give us five-star reviews and subscribe on, on those devices as well. Just kidding! Don't don't do that. We 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 like to have good you know a, a good measure of who actually listens to us. <laughs> Any support of the Nolcast is uh, is always appreciated, regardless of how it comes. So, uh, all right, listener of, question time. Speaking of support, yeah, exactly. Speaking of support, great feedback as always. <clears throat> have some wonderful questions. We'll start with Tom. Uh, Tom starts by complimenting both the show and our sponsor. Smart man there, Tom. But his first question reads, what happens when a player fails to qualify from the school's perspective? But I'll let you answer that one. So, okay. Uh, so Tom is asking about what happens when a recruit fails to qualify. And this is a multifaceted answer, I, I think. And I'm going to try and keep it as simple as possible. So first, I'll, I will start by saying that it, it's going to depend on why the player did not qualify. Did he have a test score issue or did he have a uh, lack of a credits issue or a grades issue or potentially some combination of both? Because the remedy for those things is different, right? If it's a test score issue, sometimes they can do a little prep work. Uh, if it's a grades issue or a credits issue, oftentimes they're going to have to go to a junior college uh, in order to get their AA, in, in order to get into uh into your your four-year school. Uh, now, this brings up the ne- my next point, which is, did the school expect this? Back in the day, 
The answer to this was oftentimes yes, because they did not have these signing limits. And so schools would do a lot of what we called sign in place. And sign in place was basically kids you knew wouldn't actually qualify, but you liked their talent a whole lot. And you'd say, all right, well, hey, like we're going to let you sign with us as sort of a, um, a signal of how much we like you. Obviously, you're not going to be able to enroll because, you know, you, you don't have any grades. Um, but if you go to junior college, you keep working. We're going to tell you here that you can come back. Now, this is not binding, but it's kind of a good motivational tool. And if you do end up being as good as we think you are and actually qualifying out of junior college, well, great. Like we've had that relationship with you from day one. And we know that kids uh, strongly value the team that was the first to offer them or the school that actually showed the most love down the stretch. Nowadays, because of limited scholarship spots and you can't, you have, you have fewer letter of, letter of intent you can just throw out to kids, right? Because of that, which has curtailed the oversigning some, because of that, you have fewer kids who are signed in place. Now, it does still happen sometimes that a kid will have to go to junior college. So the question becomes, does the school know? If the school's blindsided by this, A, they've probably not done their research very well, or they, they somehow got lied to. Um, and in that case, they might decide that they, they don't want to have anything to do with the player. If the school is not blindsided by this, and, and they know that the kid is probably going to be a borderline qualifier, uh, which is generally the only type you're going to actually let sign nowadays, because most schools do not let the kids sign if they have no chance of getting into college, right? You know, like look, look at Dewan Black, who was, in my opinion, the best player in Florida's class. He's going to have to go to a junior college for for a year uh, or, or, or two, I think just a year, actually, in uh, probably Mississippi. But but they, they certainly knew that he, he had grades concerns. Florida State will still take kids like that, but like you got to you got to make sure you know what's happening with them. And so if you think the kid can make it back to you and you think he's a player who you like for the long term uh, and, and he might have extra development left, then you go ahead and you, and you stay you stay in contact with him. You monitor him as he goes to a junior college and you, you keep tabs on him and, and you hope that you can actually sign him when he comes back out of the junior college. But but again, it's not binding. Once they fail to qualify, it's 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 done. It's a good uh, good breakdown there. Question number two from Tom reads, with all the changes in recruiting in the transfer portal, at what point is it time to let the undrafted juniors return? Happens all too often to quality guys. If they don't sign 24 hours after the draft, they get the option to come back or possible transfer type of thing. I mean, I think they should be able to come back for sure. Football has probably the least fair system out of all the sports, and it's completely ridiculous because it's the, the <laughs> sport. It's the sport in which the because it, it absolutely does. Yeah, it absolutely does. Like it does not. It does not match up with 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 the idea of fairness at all. Um, we talked about this before. The two sports that have the most African American kids uh, in them are the two sports that have the least fair labor practice rules. That would be basketball and especially football. In football. You have to go play the most dangerous sport of the, of the major sports, at least, for uh, at least three years before you're eligible for the draft, exposing yourself to uh, a lot of potential damage to your body and uh, and shortening your career. Uh, so, yes, look, they should absolutely be allowed to come back. But there are some logistical concerns there as far as when, when signing day actually occurs. But I think if you're a program, um, one thing that could make this even better nowadays or, or, or more feasible than it was prior is that we know that some schools are actually saving spots now in their class to accept transfers, right? 
Florida State obviously had one open, and they, they were able to take Ryan Roberts. Miami had a couple open, and they, they've managed to take like half of, of the transfer portal uh, in, in total. So, yeah, I, I think that these kids absolutely should be able to come back if they go undrafted. Um, or potentially even if they're unhappy with, with, with their draft slot. Uh, we, we know in the NBA, uh, if you go undrafted and you did not sign with an agent, right, you, you can come back. I, man, I, I just don't think it's very fair. Um, and, yeah, they, it, it should have happened a long time ago. But especially now, because of the transfer portal and the schools having those spots open, I'd absolutely say, yeah, you, sh- you should be able to do that. But I'm going to uh, <clears throat> I'm going to exploit the fact that I'm a podcast host here and interject my own question uh, before any other listener question. A uh, question I've been thinking about for a couple weeks and one that I've been meaning to ask you about, and it's somewhat tied to what Tom has written about here. Uh, in your opinion, you think maybe we expand the amount of scholarships that you can offer or give the coaches anything to, I don't want to say combat necessarily, but the, the landscape has certainly changed with kids' ability to transfer. Uh, do you see any kind of ramification or reverberation that would maybe allow the programs to sign an extra two or three kids a year with the idea that it looks like they may well be losing two to three kids a year with, with the portal and it becoming a, an active part of the collegiate football landscape? Well, I, I think a lot of coaches would love, would absolutely love that. I, I don't think it'll happen because of the fact that a lot of these these schools already say they're cash-trapped, right? And so you'd have yeah. to be able and to... It would, it would certainly have Title IX ramifications as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I will say this though, right? Because like like the the kids who are transferring out are going to other schools, and the kids who are transferring in are coming from other schools. So in theory, while you should be losing some kids, you're probably over the over the long arc of time gonna even this out, right? I mean, I, I would think so at least. You would think it would work that way, yeah. Over over the longevity of time. So I I just I understand the sentiment, but. Do a good job in the transfer portal, right? Have somebody on your staff who who reviews transfer portal stuff. That that's a potential market inefficiency that could be exploited, I, I think, uh, by some schools if you had enough resources to have a, a literally like a transfer portal guy, you know, who knew how to knew, knew how to evaluate film, but also uh, knew a lot of these parents and high school coaches and and uh, people at other schools and whatnot who could call up and ask like, hey, this kid's in a portal. Any idea why? Do you know where he wants to go? What like like did he just suck at his former school, or or is he actually okay? I know a guy actually like that who could do a good job of that. If you're a major major program, maybe in Athens, or uh, you know somewhere around there, Tuscaloosa, some some somebody with a significant <laughs> significant ability to to pay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Sean asks with the new rule regarding the number of recruits you can sign in a class at twenty five. But to my understanding, you can count back. You can back count players from the previous cycle who enrolled early. So would that mean Florida State could sign up to 31 commits? If that is wrong, please let me know. And would you mind explaining the rule further? Sure. So, okay, you can back count a kid if you have room in the prior class to back count them, right? So let's say that you signed 20 in last year's class, right? Um and then this year, like, okay, so we actually have – if we can get some more early enrollees in, we can back count them to last year's class because you're allowed to sign 25 per class, right? You're, you're basically allowed to assign 25 per class. So if you only signed 20 last year and you could find five kids 
in the upcoming class to early enroll, then you could basically sign 30 because it would be 30 minus the five who are going to early enroll and count back to last year's class, which, which would be the, you know, uh, 2019-2020 fall to spring semester class that just signed. Um, then, yeah, you could sign 30 because five of the 30 would count back, leaving you with 25, which is the cap for an individual class in this year. So that, that, that is basically how that rule works. There's some creative accounting with it. But, yeah, uh, if Florida State, you know, if they could get that, that many quality prospects, I'm, I'm sure they would sign them. But you don't want to take that number just to take it. Right, because eventually the numbers do catch up to you. So uh, he also asks, how concerned are you about all the elite talent leaving? I have generously 10 players that could leave early for the draft. That does seem very generous to me. Uh, (laughs) This greatly concerns me that we'd be hypothetically having a good 2019, like a 9-3, and insert the prayer hands emoji here, uh, but could see a drop-off in 2020 and be unable to land an elite class in 21 that we will desperately need given where we stand with the elite 2020 talent. Um, yeah, I think in the long term, the lack of elite difference makers is absolutely a concern. However, I believe the roster continues to improve over what it is right now, simply because the floor, uh, to me, is is being raised a good bit at, at almost all positions, not only with, with talent, but with, uh, with, with good character kids. So uh, the lack of really elite talent is a concern. However, uh, you're, you're not going to touch Clemson, I don't think, in your own division for the next two years. So uh, it's not quite as big of a concern because there's not this scenario where like you have a, you have a window that you can really go ahead and win the division I, unless Trevor Lawrence were to get hurt or something like that. Um, so it's kind of less of a concern because it's not like a missed opportunity here, at, at least not given what happened on the field last year. Third part of Sean's inquiry states, I'm pretty happy with the potential of the O-line from 2020 on. Uh, With that being said, how many linemen do you all think we should take in this class? I think we should take six, with two being uh, JUCOs, preferably tackles, and then two high school tackles and two high school guards. Seems seems a a decent breakdown. Yeah, Uh, I'm right there. I think six is a good number. Yeah, I would take six. I I, I think six is fine. Um, If you look at this sort of in like a two- and three-year window, you could look to see how many they took two years ago and how many they took this year, right? So if you go to um, – so in 2018, they took uh, – and I got to remember to count Chaz Neal here, uh, even though at the time, you know. In 2018, they took one, two, three. No, they took four. Uh, Goss, Armstrong, Meadows, and Neal. So they took four, and in this last year, they took one and Lucas – Two and Henry, three and Smith. That sound right? And then uh, obviously Ryan Roberts, the transfer, and then they got Williams. So I think six is fine. Yeah, and, and I, I like the idea of taking two JUCOs because I, I still think you're going to need that immediate help. But if you just take one JUCO and 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 five high school kids, I, I don't have a problem with that. All right. Uh, next question here. By the way, I realized that I uh, I actually an- I asked and answered that question uh, in, in the previous from the previous questioner without giving you a chance. And I apologize for that. Uh, you want to ask me the Christopher one? My heart was broken, bud. 
<laughs> Christopher Wright saw a post from another Florida State outlet that was criticizing the DB group from last year. I do not think they deserve all that much praise, but data suggested otherwise, and I think it might have been skewed. My question is, do you guys think it was because they would give up a sort of reverse garbage time thing, where instead of an offensive scoring a garbage time TD, the defense allows garbage time yards points because the team is down so big and they have thrown in the towel knowing the offense isn't going to do anything when they get back on the field anyways. It had to be hard for the defense to care, especially in, say, the Clemson game, where they were down 21 points quick and knew that the offense hadn't been across the 50. I would love to know the DB group success rate in the first half of games as opposed to the whole game. I think the DB group can be pretty good this year, honestly, and will probably have to be if the linebackers struggle again. Or we are getting to the quarterback. So I would love to get your take on them giving up by the end of the game and thus moving and thus making the overall grade for the DBs bad. Okay, one word. Syracuse, like, there's no doubt that the defense was demoralized at times, right? And they definitely tried to make plays outside of the scheme of the defense uh, too much because they realized the offense was just total garbage and was not going to score. And there are some individual games that we can point out. Syracuse, uh, where, where they definitely took took too many chances uh, down the stretch and, and started playing with a lack of discipline. Now, here's what Bill Connolly, my friend at SB Nation, uh, had to say about this. He said, the defense was also saddled with the worst starting field position in the nation. I looked this up. That's not hyperbole. Florida State's defense literally started with the 130th worst field position in the country. So every time they made a mistake, it was basically a touchdown because that's where the teams were starting from. I mean, they, they were starting so far into FSU territory on average. Uh, and they also had some of the worst turnover luck to boot. Again, if you're new to the show, turnovers have a huge luck component. Uh, they recovered only three of, of, of the 17 opponent fumbles they faced, which is crazy because they play largely a zone defense, uh, and that typically doesn't happen a whole lot. Uh, and they defensed 72 passes, um, but uh, they, they they only ended up 12 interceptions, and normally you would get about 15 or 16. So Florida State had some very bad turnover luck last year. They were also – this is kind of where the hidden yardage factor comes in. Where they, where they were starting – was just absolutely terrible, and it made things look a lot worse. The defense last year was not that bad. It was not incredible. I mean, they were 37th in Bill in Bill's numbers. But look, compared to what the offense was, which was down there in like the 120s, it's very clear where the problem on this team was, and it was not on the defense, although a lot of people don't seem to like Harlan Barnett for whatever reason. Uh, I'm The jury for me is kind of out, you know, so I want to see more. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't think he did a bad job by any means. I think there's something to this, though. As the game got a little bit out of hand and was starting to get out of hand, the defense could sense that, and they started trying to do it all on their own and thus ended up making even more mistakes. Yeah, the idea of reverse garbage time. That was a a lengthy question there by Christopher, but a really good one and a little bit of a new idea, which is not something I can say we encounter all the time. So a great question and appreciate you taking the time to submit it. Uh, Mike writes, am I crazy to think that Dickerson deciding to transfer to a program like Alabama or even Texas A&M, where he's far less likely to get playing time if healthy than FSU, is an indicator of the lack of faith that the players have in this coaching staff. We are beyond desperate for talent on the offensive line, and Dickerson would have had, would rather uproot himself and roll the dice to get playing time somewhere else. 
Or is this particular decision based on having alienated himself from the rest of the team by putting himself in the portal the first time? Furthering my concern, we have Levante Taylor going after former Florida State football players on Twitter for not coming back to campus and help them out. Do you think it's maybe just a portion of the locker room that hasn't bought in? Maybe just some of the guys that were recruited by Jimbo Fisher staff, i.e. Dickerson, Taylor, etc., are not happy with this staff, and that is causing issues. Would love to know your thoughts. Keep up the good work, and congrats, bud, on becoming a father. Mike, I appreciate that and appreciate the question as always. Uh, look, I, I think Dickerson's going to start at Alabama. Has he announced he's going to Alabama yet? I'm not sure that's uh, been made officially, no. Okay, well, that's where I think he's going. I, I got that on pretty good authority. I think he's going to start, right? If Landon Dickerson is healthy, he's good enough to start at Alabama. When he when healthy, he's by far the best lineman FSU had. That's why FSU needed him to play out of position and play at tackle, right? Because they don't have any, any tackles on their roster who are any good. They have some that might be just bad, which is if you're bad, you're going to be the best tackle on the roster, most likely. So I I don't think it's a, a – I don't think playing time is a concern for him. I think playing the position that he wants to play, certainly we know he doesn't get along with his coaching staff uh, very much due to some kind of disagreements that they've had. So uh, we are beyond desperate for talent in the line. Dickerson would rather uproot himself and roll the dice that he gets – see, yeah, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's roll the dice. I think he's that talented. Right, like when he's healthy, he's pretty damn good. Now he needs more experience, which he's not been able to get because he hasn't stayed healthy over the course of his career. But um, yeah, I think he probably did alienate himself uh, at, at least some from the rest of the team. There's there's no doubt about that. And, and I don't think Levante Taylor is really related to that. Um, I'm sure Levante is frustrated that he really hasn't developed as a player as much as I thought he would. I'm sure he thought he would. For a variety of reasons, including a little bit of injury, I believe. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's kind of my take on Dickerson. There, I, I think that he went a place that he feels like is better. There's really no arguing that it's a better place right now, and he gets to play the position that he uh, that he'll play as a pro. Evan writes as a Noel who is stuck in Kansas. Louisiana hot sauce is a life-saving uh, for the bland, tasteless cuisine of the Midwest. Uh, Evan, appreciate the sponsor plug there, and he goes on to write, I want to see Willie succeed in rooting for him, but am concerned that his tenure may be doomed due to missing the critical early window recruiting bump after a disastrous first season that was mostly not his fault. Most successful coaches at A-level school that win titles do so quickly. I know Tomahawk Nation has done the numbers on this in the past. We know this is a long-term re- Build, particularly along the offensive line, can momentum be regained over in year three or four, or does the window closing doom him for the elite top tier prospects of his early tenure? Excellent question here. Uh, Evan's exactly right. Uh, typically, you do have to get off to a hot start. We, we've spoken about this a number of times. Willie is behind the eight ball, uh, and it is possible to regain that momentum. I don't know that it is probable. Uh, he would probably have to exceed my expectations that I have for him right now uh, with the program. But I think his first goal right now is just kind of get the program back to respectability. Like, like I don't, I don't think winning championships right this second is a, a realistic goal. Um, but there's no doubt that he has missed out on, on that window. And we saw a very brief glimpse of what it could be if you go back to last summer with, with how many elite kids were all about Florida state. I mean, they had some, some really genuine enthusiasm about the program, uh, unlike which I'd really kind of ever seen before. And I've covered this team for a long time. But, uh, yeah, they, they've missed out on that window. They're, they're having to kind of do more of the slow rebuild now. 
I agree most of it is not his fault, but, uh, you know, like, like you're not going to get eight years to rebuild something like Florida State. You know, if, if, if the program is a little bit worse off than, than it was or than you realized it was when you took the job, okay, you'll probably get four. Make it work. Yeah, you you certainly have to you have to make this most of your early window for a lot of reasons. There, it's uh, frequently a time where you the only time where you really have the full institutional support of those that uh, that really maybe dictate how successful you can be on the recruiting trail. And uh, you know, there's certainly some outliers to this. Dabo didn't set the world on fire, but uh, for the most part, you can go back from from the year 2000 on and. Uh, the coaches that win national titles do so in year by year three or four and very much have kind of laid the uh, the blueprint for their success. And uh, you you would have to see Willie start to start to get a pretty significant uptick uh, if you ultimately have the hopes that he can be as successful as possible. Absolutely right. All right. Uh, as always, appreciate you guys listening. Uh, like we mentioned, five-star reviews, anything, any other support of the podcast is uh, wildly appreciated by Bud and myself. Uh, we don't have a necessarily a set schedule this time of the year. Try to bring you a podcast when we feel it's appropriate and not going to waste your time. Uh, so uh, look for us in the next uh, five to ten days. Always love being able to talk with you this is a good time for us to try to get to as many questions as possible so uh if there's something that you have for us email us at the nolcast at gmail.com and uh bud and i thank you for your support and look forward to talking to you in the near future take care y'all